Again, welcome to Theology on Tap. We're so glad that you are here. You'll see these little sheets of paper kind of lying around the room. That's going to be really important for how tonight goes. So uh, you'll see this QR code at the top. The way the evening works is Brian and I talk about uh, every time we gather some, some topic of discussion that's interesting, we hope. And then we open it up to questions around 8 o'clock. And they can be related to that topic or not related to it at all. We get some pretty interesting questions. It's a lot of fun. And the way to, to submit questions is by scanning that top QR code. You can see other questions. You can do it anonymously. And you can like the ones that you like. And we've got Ian tonight moderating, so he'll be able to send uh, those, those best questions in, uh, which is great. So again, I'm Justin Hare. This is my friend Brian McGreevy. We are delighted that you are here. Did you mind sitting a little higher so the people can actually not, you're, you're blocking everybody's view. I mean, I know they love looking at you. Now it looks like you're in timeout, which is just bad. Somebody join them up there. I mean, this is bad. All right. Thank you. What's the other QR code for? Oh, yeah. So we have some announcements on there. You can see, uh, well, first of all, you can join our email list by that QR code on the left. But there's a couple things that are happening coming up which I just want to draw your attention to. Uh, the Walk for Water is something that Water Mission does, and St. Phillips has a group of folks going to it. We'd love for you to join us for that. You can scan that QR code and sign up for that. Also, there's a, a rodeo that some young adults that I know are, are going to. You can see some information there on who to contact. And um, yeah, just try to do some things outside of this time that are fun and serve a good purpose. So tonight, what is our topic? We are talking uh, about the spiritual significance of meals. Yes. What a boring topic until we actually start talking about it. <laughs> Brian, what, um, one of the things that caused us, I think, to want to talk about this is that every society that's ever lived has certain values. They have certain rhythms. And what they do with their time, their rituals and their rhythms reflect what they value, what they love. And... Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting is our society and how much it's changed based on how it's approached mealtime. And so why, in, in that sense, like our society's take on meals today, why would we need to talk about that? Well, I think part of the reason we need to talk about it is that there has been a sea change in the way that people approach meals in their life. And you may think, well, who cares? Uh, <laughs> We care, uh, and part of the reason that we care is that the change in our view um, and in the view of what you see in the scriptures um, is a change in the wrong direction. And part of the thing that has happened with meals is that meals have become part of, uh, I guess, just the, the, the narcissism in our culture of we want our meal time to just be convenient for us, that that's the ultimate thing that matters. And we don't want to um, have our meals be inconvenient in any way. Um, and we may see our meals primarily as something that's just for ourselves personally and not having any other purpose. But the interesting thing, particularly if you're older like I am, um, I can remember a time where everybody had family dinner and everybody pretty much had family breakfast and sometimes family lunch as well. And these were these were like 
bedrock things in people's schedules that you never would think of missing. And part of the point of them is that you stopped everything that you were doing and you focused on the people that God had put in your life. And that stopping and focusing was a way of breaking the craziness of your schedule and actually building relationship. And you contrast that now with, let's say it's a family that has three kids at home. Very few families manage to have family dinner anymore. They are dealing with their kids' soccer schedule and homework and all of that, and the fact that this kid only wants to eat chicken fingers, and this kid um, only wants to eat vegan, and you know all of that. And so no one is sitting down together and having this time anymore. And that is a loss because it's part of what it means to be human. Yeah, yeah we'll talk a lot about the differences between just how much meals have changed. For one, we're not really talking about the food, though we could. Uh, we're talking about everything that goes into mealtime, right? And so one of the things that I think reflects what our society today loves, we love our, ourselves in some sense because it's revolving around our own time frame and our desires. We love efficiency, right? We, we love meals in that sense take more time that you could be doing other Something things. Else. You could be doing other important things, work or... Um, you know, something fun that you would rather do. And so in one sense, it's, uh, it's a reflection of our society's like uh, love of ourselves, but love of like convenience too. It was really interesting, you know, we were reading about, if you've never really known kind of other kinds of meals, which I think for me and those younger, like this is kind of the way it's always been. I mean, we were always brought up where we're, at least when we were teenagers, like we had a lot of things going on rarely had family meals, but for the majority of human history, meals were very, very different. And so like that was one, just kind of your rhythm of life was around uh, eating. And that meant that you weren't so much giving into your own desires, but the desires of the others around you, when, when they ate was when you ate as well. So you would organize yourself around somebody else. But there, there was something else too that we we don't really get, but it's so true is that meals convey our dependence. We have become really disconnected to where our food comes from, who made it, and our reliance. We just go to the store and get it. And so a lot of the narrative of our world today it reinforces the idea that you are your own autonomous self. You are the king of the world. You can do all that just and by utterly going to the grocery store or having a smartphone. Like all of this teaches you that you are the center of the universe and can get things what you want instantly. And um, you know, I'm not against technology. I think technology is good in its proper place. But what has happened is in our longing for efficiency and, and becoming, um, we think technology is going to make us uh, be able to have more leisure time. And in fact, it's done just the opposite. Our attention spans are shorter and we actually don't have nearly as enough time as we think we do with the advent of a lot of the technology we have. And I think one of the reasons is because now you're working all the time. You're expected to work kind of around the clock. There, there weren't those scheduled rhythms of when it's daylight, that's when you work, right. you know? Um, yeah. 
what else are you thinking? Yeah, about? well, and I think the other thing that we have lost is that there used to be a very strong sense of the sacred that had to do with mealtime and a sense of gratitude toward God. And this is something that's deeply wired into the scriptures. And you see it in the Old Testament with God providing manna for the people and God providing quail. Um, and you see in many of the Psalms and other things, um, blessings to God for having provided food. And one of the things that we forget is that through most of ancient history, most people's lives revolved around laboring to get enough food to be able to eat. And so that is why there was thanksgiving for meals and thanksgiving um, for this food and why when there was a big celebration uh, in a family or in a culture, it always involved food. And you see this all through scripture um, from Genesis right up through Revelation um, and this idea that the, the ultimate uh, thing at the end of time is going to be what's called the marriage feast of the Lamb. And so this, this feasting is part of our relationship with God, and there's a gratitude element in that. It's not an accident that right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, there is a line that says, Give us this day. And notice it's our daily bread. That was very good, by the way. Um, it's not bread that you have stored up, but you're dependent on God each day for that bread. And one of the things that we have lost is that even for people who are not living in a family with a spouse and children, there used to be an understanding that creating fellowship around the table was part of what it meant to be human. And that there's a sacrificial element in that as well of giving up your time and your money and your effort to plan a menu, to buy the food, to set a table, to buy a bottle of wine, to plan in advance and invite people to come and be with you. And you take that time and you focus just on those people. And we're losing this even in restaurants now because restaurants, most of them, have screens where we're focused on the screen instead of the people that are in front of us. And it's just a huge loss when we lose all of that. Yeah, it's yeah, going back to one of the things you said about Thanksgiving before the meal. You you were well aware of your dependence as a creature, right? And you're also it was the interconnectedness of a meal that these this web of relationships that really what brought people the table was the the center of gravity of life in many ways. That's so foreign, I think, to us today. One of the times, usually when I sit down with folks and, and you know, I do have a meal, sometimes, uh, you know, they'll just jump right in and start eating, and they're like, oh, I forgot to say the blessing. One of the things that I remind them is like, well, actually, it's, that's okay. In ancient cultures, what they would do is they wouldn't just pray before the meal, but they would, they would pray after mm -hmm. the meal as well, and it was amazing. They'd actually give thanks for specific things during the meal that they enjoyed. Imagine taking the time you know, in the intentionality in all of this. And I think this is what, the reason why talking about this is hopefully you're beginning to catch that it's way more about the relationships that center around food. Uh, 
it's not about necessarily the food itself, though I think food is a good created thing that we're meant to enjoy. But uh, it's really, like we said, the center of gravity. And, and it, you just think of all the things as you were listing, like the demands of what it takes to actually, okay, if you're going to eat with other people today, all the things that you would have to say no to in order to make that happen, the sacrifice that it, that it is, and, um, and yet, so we just kind of say, well, that's too hard. And yet we're kind of cutting the branch that we're sitting on off because what we want so much today in our fragmented, atomized world where we're isolated is we want friendships, we want relationships. And I think so often it's just so hard to say that's too much of a cost to say no to all the things, to, to actually schedule my life in such a way, to, to risk the vulnerability, to actually sit down with other people and, and ask questions of them, want to get to know them and their story. And, you know, what if there's dead space over the meal? I don't know. Like, uh, it's usually just a lot of those fears that cause people mm-hmm. to, to lose the, the fullness of what mealtime could be and therefore lose out on a key component of how friendships were historically formed. Yeah, and I think so. One of the things that is remarkable about sharing a meal with someone is that that is, in a way, a time of vulnerability and of intimacy because you are, unless you're really rude, uh, you have put your phone away while you're having dinner with the person. Uh, And you are really, you are focused on someone else besides yourself. And that, in and of itself, is a pretty rare thing. But... If you cultivate the idea of eating meals with people, uh, one of the interesting things about that is that for a lot of people who are in um, y'all's age range, loneliness, isolation, anxiety, feeling not connected, those are huge issues. And having a meal with someone addresses all of those at once. And it provides a space of peace and you know, going back in the ancient world, meals really were a time of vulnerability because that was at the time when you would literally put your weapons down when you were with someone. And it showed that there was a level of trust if you agreed to have a meal with someone. And one of the things I think is fascinating, some of you all know I did a lot of work in France, and the French culture which there are plenty of things that are wrong with French culture that may be wrong about that. But there are some things that are really right. And one of the interesting things that survives in France is that uh, that's the opposite of what you were taught here is if you are at a nice dinner, um, where do you put your hands? Yes, in France, you put your hands on the table. And then in the United States, you fold your hands in your lap. It's rude to put your hands on the table. But in France, it is incredibly rude not to put your hands on the table. And that is a holdover from the Middle Ages where they wanted to make sure you didn't have a hidden weapon. But one of the, and that's still true today, but one of my most fascinating conversations with one of my French friends was when I was in Paris probably about 15 years ago, and he, he and I were having a drink at a cafe, and he was like, but what he sees, what he sees is McDonald is adding a drive-through. What he's drive-through? Who would drive through? What is purpose? And I was like, well, jump here. <laughs> the idea is that you go and you like order your food 
through the speaker and they give you your food and then you eat it in the car. And he thought I was joking. He was like, what? No, no one would do this. And I was like, no, no, you have to understand. He's like, why eat in cars? Disgusting. <laughs> but, you know, for French people, the idea of the meal together is still something that is unbelievably important. And it's held on there much more than it has in our country, even though that country is more secular than ours. But it just shows you you know, to us, drive-through seems totally normal. The idea of picking up something and eating it as you're driving and talking on your phone at the same time, you think you're maximizing utility. But, you know, a French person looks at it and it's like, you are out of your mind. Yeah. Well, now I know why you always sit with your hands on the table. I've never known that. I was like, oh, that's interesting. You're just showing me that you don't have a weapon. To that's exactly to it. Yeah. That's really well, Brian, you know, Tell me some of like the maybe one or two meals that you can remember that really meant a lot to you that and, and why in your life? Oh, wow. That is a dangerous question. All right. Um, I'm going to keep this short. I'll tell you about two. So one was uh, when I was in England and I was helping lead a pilgrimage where we were studying about C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. So we had recreated one of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien's walks. So we had walked for about four miles through this beautiful British countryside on this incredibly beautiful day and ended up in this pub that Lewis and Tolkien used to go to. And we're sitting on an outdoor terrace next to a waterfall and the river um, where one of the most famous pictures of the Inklings had been taken. And during the meal, we had decided that each of us was going to reflect on what had been most meaningful to us out of the past three days. And so there were um, 10 of us. And so we were all sitting around the table sharing that. Meanwhile, we were having this really wonderful food and really wonderful homemade ginger beer. Mm -hmm. And the sun was shining. And we were at table for like four hours. And it was just unforgettable. Incredible conversations, laughter, tears. It was just beautiful. Um, the other one that comes to mind is with my same friend in France um, who couldn't understand the drive-through. Um, <laughs> we were at his country house. And so when you, and this was the first time we had been invited there because it's a big deal. French people don't invite you in usually in the same way that people in this country might. But we went to his country house, and there were 12 other house guests there. And they live in the country, since it's a country house. And they do dinner outside every night. And so dinner started with cocktails at 7. And then we sat at this beautiful long table lit by torches next to a reflecting pond under a grove of fruit trees. and. Eight different courses came out over a period of hours. And then long about 1 o'clock in the morning, um, the cheese course started. And by this point, there, there are no clouds in the sky. The stars are just incredibly bright. And then they started singing. And fortunately for me, I had a crazy French teacher in ninth grade that taught me a lot of French drinking songs. <laughs> so I knew all the songs that they were singing. And so we started singing these songs um, until about three in the morning. So we were at table 
from 7 until 3. And it was incredible. And some of those people I had never met before, um, I'm still friends with virtually all of them because of that dinner. Wow, that's amazing. So what about yeah. for you? I'm, I can think of, yeah. Top that. <laughs> As always, I can't top you, Brian. Um, but two, I'm old. two stick out to me. I think one was, it was my birthday, uh, 22nd birthday actually. I was just graduated college and I was spending uh, about two months in Istanbul with a lot of uh, friends from church. Uh, there was a group of us college students who went over there and uh, we really, we didn't know any Turkish at all. And so we'd kind of go to the universities and try and get to know some folks. And on my birthday, it was dark. We couldn't figure out where we were trying to find uh, that sort of thing, we, much less find any restaurants that seemed to be open. I think we were in a dangerous part. We couldn't figure out where <laughs> we were. We couldn't talk to anybody. We, we were at this point so close to trying to figure out how to get back to where we needed to go for the night. And it was really desperate. And we, we looked down this alley, basically, that was kind of shady. And we turned, the, we were like, let's go at least try this one more after about an hour of looking for places. And lo and behold, this was a, a beautifully lit outdoor street that had, I love Italian food. There was this Italian restaurant that had outdoor seating. It was a table that had all, like all 15 of us could sit at. And after being really discouraged and starving on my birthday, we were able to sit there and just tell stories about our time so far there and eat delicious food. And it was such a brilliant surprise that I, I remember just the joy of that. But Another meal I think that I can w is really with the the clergy of St. Philip. Mm -hmm. I know it's one of the it was weird for me when I came. We actually make a point to eat together at least once a week, and I've never been in an environment where like that was really valued. And that's it was like oh this is amazing. Now I see why. But every year it seems like right before everybody goes off their separate ways on summer vacation, we get together. And I remember I think the first time we were at Andrew's house, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. all of the the clergy team and our wives got together and just I mean it was hours, but yeah. just telling stories about you know whenever you're kind of on a common goal together, and it, it's really the the table's a place where great stories are shared, and it doesn't matter if it's the same thing you've heard a million times, but. It's just the delight there that, that comes out, you know, and um, so those were, those were a few of them, I, I think, that catch my attention. Uh, one of the things that I think, you know, we live in a, a divided age, like we're all isolated, right, in our own segments. That's why we're eating alone and that sort of thing. And I, I wanted to say, I think that the devil, right, the spiritual forces of wickedness, are delighting in that. Mm -hmm. the, the devil literally, that diabolos means divider, the one who divides. If you look at people who are eating by themselves, they're all divided. And I think he's rejoicing in that. And, and I remember sharing this with you. The, it's a, a couple of things I want to plug here, but uh, the guys at um, the Rabbit Room who produced Every Moment Holy, which is a book of like little liturgies, uh, this is a liturgy for feasting with friends. And it's kind of weird the first time you do it because it's like everybody gets a sheet and there's like a call and a response and like all of that is very weird today. But when you but listen, awesome. when you listen to it, like it starts with the person who, who starts it off says, to gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair for feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are at their heart acts of war. 
And I don't think that's how we approach eating with friends, but I think that's exactly how the devil's approaching it. I think we ought to take the same seriousness of, of being together with friends and feasting over table in that same sort of way. This is an mm-hmm. act of war, mm-hmm. and that the forces of evil will not have the last word, I think. Yeah, and I think part of what is so important is to realize that what you gain from choosing to become intentional about this area of your life is something that is immense. We're not coming to try to make you feel bad for going through the Chick-fil-A drive-through. But what we do want to say is there's so much more out there. And if you begin to try to be strategic, if you will, about planning the way that you engage with mealtime, about inviting friends, and not it's a great first step to go to a restaurant together, but it's an even better step to invite people into your home because that is something that brings intimacy and it is uh, powerful. And we haven't even really talked about that, of course, the central sacrament mm-hmm. of the church is Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. A meal. Um, a meal. And you know, that is one of the things I love about Anglicanism is that it engages all of our senses and Holy Communion engages our sense of taste as well. And so I think that you know, trying to work on this idea of um, not getting forced into eating alone and figuring out how you can either have one person over or get a group of friends and say, each of you bring one thing um, and then just see what happens. And this is one of the reasons I love Tolkien. Um, if you have read The Lord of the Rings or read The Hobbit, um, they're all about feasting. And you know, you'll, if you've watched the movies, you'll remember Bilbo's birthday party at the beginning and all of the, the feasting and the fellowship that is going on in that context. And there's a great quotation from Tolkien that I'm going to botch that says something along the lines of more of us valued good cheer and friends and food more than hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Mm. And I think there's a deep truth in that. That's good. Well, um, Ian, how are we doing on questions? All right, everybody, take an opportunity to go online with the QR code that you were given. They're laying around. Look at the questions. Take a minute to upvote any questions that you want to hear. It is anonymous, and you can add throughout the session if you want to. But go ahead, take 30 seconds, and we'll begin the question and answer. While y'all are looking at that, two quick books that I want to recommend. We talk about this book pretty much every time we get here. The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. He gives eight little habits for what it could look like to, uh, to live more purposefully. And one of the habits is to daily eat with people. Mm-hmm. That's really important. And another one, I, I'm quickly becoming a huge fan of this. It's called Truth We Can Touch by Tim Chester. And it talks about how baptism and communion, what we've just talked about, are physical things. And in one of the chapters, he traces the entire story of the Bible into 12 meals, beginning with creation and the meal they were meant to have from the tree of life, then uh, an alternative menu when they sinned, and then ultimately uh, going all the way to Jesus where 
You know, in Luke's gospel, it says that he's either at a meal or going to a meal or coming from a meal. And that's the whole gospel of Luke. But ultimately, as you said, it, the end is this unending feast with God in heaven. It's a really neat way of looking at it. And it made me appreciate how the Christian faith is, mm-hmm. is a meal. All of this, of what we talked about, is, is intentionally brought into worship. Yeah. All right, our first question of the night. How can we... How can we invite friends and acquaintances to meals when good food, good friends, good fellowship doesn't do it? Genuinely think our generation doesn't appreciate that. (laughs) Um, I'm not in your generation, so I can't speculate about the reason uh, that might be behind that. But I think that you might be surprised that if you put yourself out there that people would appreciate that more than you might think that they do. And I think part of it is fear of the unknown, because really a lot of that is just unknown for so many people. They have not experienced that. And um, sometimes adding some things like a liturgy uh, for feasting, like the one that Justin just shared, Um, Another thing that you can do if you're worried that if it's a couple of people and you're worried that conversation maybe is going to die, you can have a theme. Um, You can say, come prepared to talk for a little bit about your favorite book or come prepared to talk about the funniest thing that's ever happened to you or those kinds of things. You can set yourself up for some conversation if you want to. But I think that the, the risk is very much less than what the reward would be. And that people may claim that these things aren't valued, but I think that when it actually happens, they are amazed. Yeah, I I mean, probably want to call baloney on it, I think, just because humans from history like have been doing this. There's something like in our very constitution and nature that that like you're gonna have to eat somewhere and everybody longs for friends. So I always hear from people, where am I gonna meet friends? Well like over table, you moron. Like that's what I wanna say. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, I just don't think this, uh, like I was, the question I think is a smoke screen for people who are sca- actually scared of the intimacy and the vulnerability it takes to do that. Now, if you're doing that one-on-one, maybe is not like the, the most comfortable way, like if you've just met somebody and hey, come over to my house for dinner. It's not like the best strategy. But like, if you had a group of friends and inviting other people, invite your neighbors. Like, you live next to people. That's really odd, but generally people are kind of intrigued as, what's inside our neighbor's house? I have no idea, that's really interesting. And another reason I think this question's bogus is because once you stop going- Although we respect whoever asked it. I mean, I'm just gonna see through this, but if you wrote this question, please talk to me and tell me I'm wrong. I'm happy to talk about it. But like when you stop going on dates to dinner over candlelight, then I'll believe you. I think, um, I, I you know like a, a, over a meal. Like I, I don't know. What do you do? I don't know. Sorry, that was a really blunt answer. Moving right along. And everybody left the room. Do you have any recommendations for practices when you find yourself eating a meal alone, such as when you're traveling? Yes. So I think there are several practices. Um, One is if you're traveling on business and there are people that you have met, even if you don't know them well, um, you can, you know, 
and you obviously don't want to do anything creepy, uh, but you can, you can suggest meeting for a meal. I used to do that sometimes in my old job and had some amazing conversations through that. Um, I think another thing that you can do is to, when you travel, um, carry, and you may think this is really weird, I'm a nerd, I just admit it, um, carry a book of poetry with you. And when you are having dinner alone, read some of that poetry and maybe also bring with you uh, some note paper and a stamp and a pen and write a note of appreciation to someone that matters to you in your life during that time. There, there are ways that you can use that time where there's still some sort of positive um, thing happening. Okay, I feel bad now. I gotta apologize. I, uh, if that was the last question was sincere, I really was too hard on that, and so please forgive me whoever wrote that. If that was really a sincere question, that was it was too hard uh, for for me to say. But I like this question because there a bunch of restaurants that are doing community tables now, yeah. which oh, are yeah, really neat. And idea. so that's always fun. I've been to, I mean. I've gone to conferences before too. This is really neat. Where you know, if I'm if I'm going to a conference on you know business or whatever, uh, and what they do is actually they've started thinking about all right. Um, if you don't ha if you're here by yourself, you can sign up for. I think there's a really cool way table. to yeah. do conferences. Um, and and I think if you're hosting work things like this, be thinking about um, as somebody putting on something like this, organize how you do the meal times. Encourage different smaller groups, you know, if you're interested in this or that as part of the conference, go and meet, meet people who are similarly interested in that. So uh, those are a couple of suggestions. You're inevitably probably going to have times where you eat alone. That's okay. And part of the, the, like, the hardness and the difficulty of that is meant to point you to like being alone eating is not what we were made for all the time. And so it's okay to, you know, just like what, how we fast from food sometimes. Uh, intentionally to remind us of the goodness of God. Sometimes we are in places where it's going to be inevitable, and that's okay to let it remind you that this is, yeah, something's not right about this, and it's okay. Yeah, and I think the other thing, this is probably blindingly obvious, but if you know people that live in the city where you are, um, letting them know in advance that you're coming and figuring out a time to get together over a meal, that can be a great thing to do. Or even if it's people you have not met, but who are good friends of people that you know that live in that town, that can be a great thing to do as well. All right, this next question, we're gonna combine two very similar. The first being, is it a sin to overeat? And the second being, how do we pray for those with eating disorders? Okay, so yeah, classically, um, one of the seven deadly sins is gluttony. Um, which is overeating, and so I think, yes, we can say that overindulgence in food, um, like overindulgence in drink or overindulgence in lots of things, um, is sinful. Uh, I think that the, the flip side of that is that um, sometimes there's intentionality to that, sometimes there's not, and so I think that makes a difference. Um, in terms of praying for people with eating disorders, I think that uh, that certainly is something that's important. If you have a friend that has an eating disorder, walking with that person in the midst of that is really important. 
because a lot of people that have eating disorders isolate mm -hmm. and they need people in their lives to walk with them through that. And that's not always the easiest thing in the world to do, but often we feel like, well, I don't know what to do, so I'm not going to do anything. And that, that is not helpful. I think staying engaged in the relationship and walking with that person is really important. Yeah, that's really good. I, yeah, overeating is historically a sin, just like over consuming alcohol, drunkenness. Undereating is probably also, like any of these things can become sins, right? What's interesting about uh, eating disorders is almost always they revolve around the element of control. Usually these folks who have them are in environments where everything is out of control. There's something that's been traumatic or terrible and the response is, well, the only thing I can control usually is like my, my food intake. And I, I think recognizing that, number one, that something really terrible is happening in this person's life and it's not just about the food, it's about something else much bigger and leaning into that and, um, and, and that's going to have compassion, empathy for the person. Second thing is... Uh, the good news that Jesus offers is that he sees every one of us just as we are and moves towards us and loves us. And, and also, so any of us who fear anything, uh, the idea of giving up control is really difficult. But we have a God who both knows everything and is all-powerful and yet all-loving at the same time. And we see that at, at the cross in mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, that he didn't just give us um, what we deserve, but he took what we deserved in our place, and that's somebody you can entrust yourself to, that who's working the whole human history is somebody who deeply loves you and sees every bit about you. I think that's a fundamental truth that helps when you fear giving up control. Mm -hmm. I think this next one is more for Father Ryan, but it goes, if you have to have your hands on the table, what do you do with them? <laughs> he just keeps them there. They, like, don't move. I'm serious. But what do you, I mean, what do you think? Yeah, so you pretty much just have to keep them where you can use them to eat. Um, and I will tell you really quickly, the way that I know this, when I was 15, I was on study abroad in France for six weeks in the summer. And I don't know how they did it, but our school contracted with, like, a restaurant that had inedible food, which is very rare in France. And so my friend and I would always go to this pastry shop on the corner because we thought we were going to starve to death otherwise. And the people that owned the pastry shop felt sorry for us. And so we became friends with them. And they invited us on a Sunday to come up into the mountains um, behind. We were in Nice on the French Riviera. And they had invited us to come up in the mountains to their village where they had a family restaurant for Sunday dinner. And we're like, wow, oh, this is great. So we went. And I was sitting next to what they call the mammy, which is the grandmother who was the matriarch. And so I was trying to be a good, polite person. And in America, you are polite when your hands are folded in your lap. And she looked over at me and she went, <gasps> and she pulled my hand out of my lap, put it on the table and hit it. And then she said, and I was like, um, but it made a very strong impression on me. So when I'm in, now, it's really, I'm sort of confused. It's interesting you stand there on the table because I thought I'm always like, you know, that I don't know what to do. But um, yeah, basically, you just have to keep them visible. And French gesture a lot, too. So it makes it easier to do that. 
All right, just a reminder for the group, there are many questions we won't get to tonight, but our clergy will be available after the event. So if you have questions that you still want to ask, feel free to ask them afterwards. And come back in two weeks when we do this again. Question bowl. We're going to do the question bowl again. We have a lot of questions. Get to all the ones we never got to. This next one reads, what do you think prayer is supposed to look like at the mealtime? Uh, that's a great question. I don't think there has to be a supposed to. Um, I think that there are several things that would be good characteristics. Uh, one is sincerity, um, not just being rote prayer. Um, I think true thankfulness, um, giving appreciation for uh, the people who have made the food. Uh, I think praying for people who are less fortunate, who do not have food giving thanks for the people that are at the table with you. I think those things are all um, sort of what I think of as the, the normal mm -hmm. aspect of that. But you can go beyond that, like with this liturgy for feasting, mm -hmm. um, that really is very thought-provoking that will make you enter into gratitude in a way more than you think of as a usual blessing. But I think even just a usual blessing is way better than nothing at all. One of the things that's still amazing to me, I don't watch a lot of television, but one of the shows that I watch sometimes is a show called Blue Bloods. It's about this um, Irish Catholic police family in New York, and it's on major network TV. But the most amazing thing to me about this show is that every show they have family dinner and in every show, they're Catholic, they say the Catholic blessing at the meal on screen in primetime TV, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. I think the, there's, there's an infinite amount of what you could do, right? But at the very least, gratitude to, to God, gratitude to the people who made it. Sometimes I, people who are really winsome that I've been around, they'll be able to, you know, if they're in a restaurant, like ask their server and just slip it in very easy. Is there, you know, we're about to say the blessing. Is there anything I could pray for you for? And sometimes it flops. Sometimes it's like really touching to people. And so there's, there's any number of things. I, I think you could, praying after a meal is actually really neat. And it's a, dis we don't, we don't reflect as a society in general. And taking, all of this is about, you know, eating a meal. You're doing these things that rearrange your life. You're, you're changing your normal patterns. And it, I don't really know many people who've prayed after a meal about specific things, which, but it's an amazing reflective discipline. Yeah, and I would also say, uh, if you have hot food that's sitting on the table in front of you, don't pray for 30 minutes. Um, yeah. That would not be considerate. Um, the other thing I would say is do pray in restaurants. One of the remarkable things that has happened so many more times than I can count is when I, and it's not always when I'm wearing a clergy collar, I have had dozens of times when somebody has come up to me in a restaurant and said, I noticed that you were praying before your meal. Do you believe? Are you a Christian or something like that? And I'll say yes. And um, then they will open their heart and say, would you please pray for me about this thing or that thing. I mean, it's just remarkable. And I think it gives people permission to approach you if you humble yourself and do that. Yeah. 
food and drink are often paired together when you're eating out. And so it's no surprise that these next two questions deal with the topic of alcohol. The first is, is it biblical to drink? And the second is, how would you explain theology on tap to someone who may be struggling with alcoholism? Would this event be considered a stumbling block for them? Those are excellent questions. Uh, so I would say scripture makes it very clear um, that wine, um, which in a lot of times when scripture is saying wine, it's taking into account beer and you know, other things like that, um, is a gift from God and that it is something that is designed um, for joy. But it's also very clear that it's designed to be used only in moderation and that, it's, that being drunk um, is always... That's the thing that's contrasted against being led by the Spirit of God. So those are um, on opposite poles. Um, I do think that for someone who is struggling with alcoholism, uh, you have to be very careful about not being a stumbling block. And I think depending on where people are with that, there's some people um, who would be very uncomfortable coming to Theology on Tap. And that is fine. There's not, no judgment for that. And if somebody were to approach one of us and have that concern, um, we would be delighted to get together with them outside of Theology on Tap, um, have them maybe listen to the podcast or whatever if they didn't want to be in that environment. Alcoholism is a really serious disease. And um, it is something where you have to be very, very careful with your boundaries. And so I would totally support someone that felt like they might not be comfortable in that environment. The flip side of that is that there are sometimes people who are struggling with that who are wary about the environment, but if they had somebody that they knew who was going to come with them and was not going to drink while they were there, that would give them a measure of comfort. So I think being that person who would come alongside and give up drinking in order to make it comfortable for your friend is a good thing as well. Yeah, yeah it's a great question. This isn't the only ministry that we do. I think that's one of the other things too, is that we have lots of other opportunities where there is an alcohol involved. I mean, I meet with uh, folks over coffee all the time or that sort of thing. But one thing I would say is like, praise the Lord that somebody's already recognized alcohol is a problem in their life and they've begun to do that and, and if it's a problem to come if that's going to be too much of a temptation then uh, some of the other things that we do would be wonderful opportunities there that we've got bible studies and that sort of thing but um i i would say you know there's plenty of people who have no idea they're alcoholics that i would hope that by doing some of this they might feel welcome to come and maybe begin to experience change in their mm -hmm. life and as mm -hmm. you're saying um but I'm, I'm so glad this question is raised. And, and you know, one of the things I, I meet with college students all the time, I try to encourage them to come from the College of Charleston. I tell them every time, Clark, is Clark back there? Or he's not. But Clark's going to card you if you're under 21, and he's really good at telling. So, um, you know, not buying alcohol when you shouldn't is, is biblical. Like following mm -hmm. the law of the land, that's important. That's one aspect of what the Bible says about alcohol. But it is a gift that is meant to be used in moderation, right? Like any gift that we have. Um, so I think that's a pretty sufficient answer. Yeah. Can you speak to how Tolkien uses the idea of sharing a meal in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy? <laughs> oh, thank you for asking. <laughs> um, it's really actually interesting. You could do a whole long talk, which I will not do, 
about that. But one of the things that you see is that there are multiple ways of sharing meals that Tolkien talks about. There are feasts that are celebrations of great events, whether it be someone's birthday or a reunion of friends or something like that. Um, there are also meals where they are, um, particularly when I think about the Lembus bread, uh, which remembers that the elven bread that's wrapped in leaves that's given to Frodo and Sam to carry on their journey. Um, that the Lembus bread, when you read about that and the way Frodo and Sam share that, and then other people in the company share it, it's almost like Holy Communion. Um, there's a lot of parallels in there. But the, the meals that are shared almost inevitably in Tolkien lead to joy. And they also lead to the breaking down of walls. One of the remarkable things that people don't really think about is that when you look at the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, you have hobbits, you have men, you have elves, you have dwarves, um, you have men of Numenor, um, you have a wizard, you have all of these different races of people who have been historically had reasons to be antagonistic toward each other, who through being brought together in fellowship, often over meals, learn to depend on one another and to care for one another and to value one another. So I could talk for an hour and a half about that, but I'll stop there. <laughs> Do you want to add no, anything to that? No, that was awesome. That was good. I'm thinking about interning in a city where I won't know anyone. Do you have any tips for branching out or sharing meals? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I would say several things. One is to be praying that God would put people in your path uh, before you go. Um, another would be to ask people about where's a good church in that town that has a ministry for young adults that you might be able to uh, meet people. Uh, I think being open to the idea of if there are multiple interns, uh, getting to know some of the other interns, asking your good friends, do you have any friends that live in this city? Um, all of those things. I think being proactive on the front end about that is really, really, really important. Because usually what we do is we're proactive about everything else. Mm -hmm. We're proactive about where we're going to live, what our transportation is going to be, all those kinds of things. And we're not proactive about our spiritual life or our fellowship. And I would suggest that we ought to flip those. Yeah, that's really good. Being intentional about um, when you're there, especially the first couple weeks, like just being intentional to say yes to uh, folks trying to, trying to meet as many people as you can uh, and like you're doing, kind of shaking the branches to try and find as many people as you can. And uh, sometimes you'll, you know, maybe out of every 10, nine of them, it'll just be like, oh, that was a nice meal, but you know, not, no kind of real friendship or anything developed there. But there will be a, a few that happen. But I think you had a great point about just asking uh, folks that you know who may know people there, or, uh, you know, realizing the world's actually really small and we're very interconnected in many ways. And, and just not being afraid to put yourself out there, which is really important to do, particularly at the beginning. Yeah, yeah and I would say the other thing too, and this is not just for that, but generally, don't limit yourself just to people that are your age. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that has happened in our modern culture that is not helpful in a lot of ways. Because when you look in scripture, there's so much about intergenerational relationships and how important those are for passing wisdom on. 
So I think being aware of people who are older that you can learn from, that you may be able to um, have a meal together could be something that could be worth exploring as well. Is it sinful to eat unhealthy food, righteous to eat healthy food, or is it a matter of prudence without any moral weight? That's a good one. Uh, that is a really good question. I would certainly not presume to be the arbiter of all morality. Uh, I think what that a disclaimer. Script, scripture uh, should have that for us. But you know, I do think that it's important to keep in mind scriptures about things like that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you are made in the image of God, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, all those kinds of things. So if you decide that you're going to eat nothing but Twinkies for a month, that's probably an issue. Um, but the flip side of that is I think that, um, again, if, if it's in moderation, if you eat something that's bad for you every now and then, I don't think that's a huge problem. But I think if it becomes something that is what you're always doing, then maybe that's an issue. Yeah, I'm probably on the same page there. I think there's particularly sweets, right? Like those are, if all you're doing is eating junk food or sweets, things that are a nice little thing to have every once in a while, that's, that's fine. I think you can also go the other way where you become so obsessive about what you eat to look a certain way uh, that you can become obsessed over that. And that's just, that's just as bad. But yeah, I think the reality is, I mean, we're far worse than we ever realized, I think. Because I would say it's just as bad to not give yourself the amount of sleep that you should have as it is to eat poorly because your body is a temple. Mm -hmm. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And to treat your body just as important as your soul, that's really important. We don't give ourselves... I mean, almost every young person I know is not sleeping enough. And they're probably eating way healthier and really just not sleeping as much as they should. I think those are on the same level. So. Is prayer at mealtime something we as humans or modern day church have created, or is there a biblical special time of prayer? Biblical special time of what? Prayer. Yes, it's precedent. You can think of it. Is there a precedent in the Bible for prayer, or is this a modern invention? Uh, I think there's definitely a precedent for prayer at meal times. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that is interesting is that meal times themselves have shifted around um, over time. So there's nothing sacred about breakfast at eight, lunch at twelve, dinner at six. Um, that's very American. Uh, if you go to other countries, even now, they don't go by that, and so. Um, I think the timing of meals, there's not um, any sort of precedent about that. Do you want to? Yeah, there, um, it was usually pretty rare to have the three set meals a day in most of human history, from what I know. And But at least in the Bible, you do have a pattern from the beginning of gratitude and, and gratefulness over the times of meals, if I think that's what the question's mm -hmm. asking. So. Yeah, maybe one more and we can wrap it up. All right, last question. Your favorite places to eat in the Holy City? Oh, oh wow. Oh. 
boy, in this place of all places, you know, yeah. where to go. Well, we talk about gillies all the time. Yes. That's a Justin great and I have lunch next Monday, so we're gonna this do is something we're gonna do the about. top five of each because yeah. this is impossible. Uh, Glass Onion, which yes. is another place. Oh, they're they have the best sides ever. Um, and it's reasonable. Just start spitting them out because there's too many. All right, so there's Gillies, Glass Onion. Um, I love Rue de Jean. Yeah. Um, Martin's Barbecue is really good. Yeah, I like Lewis's Barbecue. Lewis's Barbecue is really good. Um, Home Team Barbecue's nachos are like really good. I like those. Uh, you know, there's pretty much not a bad restaurant anywhere around. Uh, so there, there are so many places that are good in Charleston. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for coming out. This has been a lot of fun. We'll be sticking around for a while. Yes. Hey, I have an announcement if you don't mind. Yeah, go for it. I'll... So uh, this is a little bit last minute, but going with our theme about talking about food, we're going to do, some of us were talking about doing a get-together at my house. Uh, it's in Latson Sunday, this upcoming Sunday, probably like 7 to 10. If you guys get your phones out, I'll give you my number. Just send me a text, your name, and I'll add you to a group chat. We'll all start talking about it if you guys are good with that. All right? Fantastic. Ooh, that's that's awesome. awesome. Thanks for doing that. That's great. All right, it's going to be 706. 773. Oh, my voice carries. I'm good. <laughs> 706 773 0662. Uh, I'm Audrey Long, by the way, in case I haven't met some of you guys, but just hit me, hit me up with a text and we'll get your chat going and, and try to get something set up for next week. And you know what? I can send out an email too that has all that after this. And um, yeah, you, they can get in touch with you that way. Thanks for doing that. What a great, That's great. way to live into what we just talked about. Yep. So, awesome. hey, in two weeks, it's going to be Holy Week, which hopefully, if, if that's totally new, we're going to be meeting. We'll talk a little bit about Holy Week, but then we're going to look at all the questions we haven't gotten to. And there's a lot going on that week. We'll talk about it, and we'd love for you to join us. But thanks for coming and tonight. And I do, before we oh, okay. quit, one more announcement since um, Chris is not here. Um, some of y'all know Chris that usually helps us with sound is also a musical genius that uh, runs all of the music programs at St. Phillips. And on Sunday, April the 2nd at five o'clock, yeah. um, there is going to be this extraordinary um, musical offering that is um, the Passion According to St. Mark. Some of y'all will know what an oratorio is for knowing about Handel's Messiah. This is the same sort of thing, but oriented around Jesus's last hours before his crucifixion. Uh, it is an incredibly beautiful and moving piece of music. And if you come to that the week before Easter, it will make your Easter so much more meaningful. So it's free. Um, it is going to be of the caliber that we could easily be selling tickets for $30 a piece for it, but it's a free offering from Chris and the choir, so I would commend that to you. At St. Phillips. At St. Phillips, five o'clock, April 2nd. April 2nd. Awesome. All right? That, I'm so glad you said that, that's gonna be awesome. So come out to that. We're so glad that you came tonight. Feel free to stick around, and we'd love to chat more yep. with you. Thanks, Thanks for coming.